Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ear Hammer Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for coming back and listening to the podcast. This is episode three of the Earhammer podcast. My guest today is Brandon Abate. He is the current singer and drummer of the band Public Squares. They are on Earhammer Records. They have a release out already, so check that out. And they might even have another release out by the time you hear this episode. But if not, it'll be out soon. If you uh, would like to help support this podcast and the record label, Ear Hammer Records, please go ahead and check out our social media sites. Instagram, of course, Ear Hammer Records, Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else that you normally would go to pay attention to what's happening in the world or follow your favorite music. Earhammer Records is probably there, and uh, the podcast and the record label is all associated in the same thing. If you'd like to help support this record label and this podcast, uh, please go to Patreon. And that is Patreon Earhammer or Earhammer Records. You'll see the logo and you should recognize it. Um, by becoming a patron, it really helps support what I'm doing here um, with the record label, the bands, and this podcast. Uh, any support helps. I super appreciate it. And if you do, uh, there's some different tiers on there that where you can get some merch. You get some stickers, T-shirts, sweatshirts, and, and there'll be more coming as well. So more merch, uh, even some Ear Hammer podcast merchandise coming down the road. So that's a good place to keep an eye on that. And, and I definitely will be sending out fun stuff to the patrons. So I appreciate that. Any support you can. Um, with that being said, I'm going to bring on today's guest. Check it out. Check it, check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special guest with me today, a Mr. Brandon Abate from a wonderful, wonderful band called Public Squares. Hi, Brandon. Hey, what's up? How you doing? I'm well. We've uh, we've actually been chatting for a little bit here, so we're all warmed up and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I don't see a lot of people lately, so when I get uh, to talk about anything that I'm interested in, then it's it's hard to get me to stop. So apolog- uh, apologies in advance for any verbosity. <laughs> well, glad you were able to come out. It's uh, really cool to have you down and, and have a chance to talk to you and get to know you and, and, and you know, behind public squares and what you guys are about. Right on. So um, I guess I want to know, I want to jump back to the early, early beginnings with you and music. Um, what, what were you doing before public squares? Um, chronologically from the beginning or immediately preceding? Well, you've, <laughs> so I'm aware that you've been in, in bands for yeah. quite a while yeah. and you had, um, you've been a part of the Cleveland music scene for, for quite a while. So, um, before public squares, you know, what, what kind of bands were, what bands were you in? What were you doing? I, I started out, um, uh, I I got a drum set um, when I was 15 
and immediately wanted to start recording it. Um, I didn't have like a band, but my brother played guitar, so I had his guitar laying around, and my buddy that I skateboarded with all the time, Steve, uh, who is in public squares with me now, um, he was like, oh, I was always thinking about playing guitar, and I was like, ah, everybody plays guitar, uh, buy a bass. <laughs> so we drove to a pawn shop, and he bought a bass and like a little gorilla amp, and now we were a band. Mm-hmm. And um, I had I had known what a four track was, so we um, we would record ourselves jamming, uh, just like improvising into a into a, like a stereo with a little like twenty dollar realistic Radio Shack mixer that I had bought and and like a mic, and then we figured out that you can use the line out on the bass to go straight in, and we made tapes like that, and then we'd listen back to them. And pick out all our favorite parts and then go up to like Soja Music and rent a four track for the weekend. Mm-hmm. You could rent a four track for the weekend for I don't know how much, but you know, we we could we could swing it uh once a month for, for a few months. Um and then we'd make as many songs as we can that weekend and record them all as fast as possible. And we'd make like these like 30 song records, like over one weekend because we had rented this four track and I had like one mic so I could stick it in front of the drums, play the drums, stick it in front of the guitar amp, play the guitar like I knew a bar chord. So that was enough to get started. And then Steve would add bass. I'd sing. And so I was doing like three quarters of it. And we made um, we made like 10 cassettes in one year. Um, after like four months, we bought, a, they came out with a four, Tascam came out with a four track that was cheap enough. It was only like 200 bucks. Um, and so I saved up and bought that and then we didn't have to rent them anymore. So that, that baby paid for itself. Right, it was like the most rudimentary four track in the world. Like I think it had a high and a low on each track and that was it. And you couldn't bounce or anything, but I didn't know what bounce and what bussing was and all that. The guy at the store tried to tell me, oh, you can uh, bounce it down by bussing out. And I'm like, oh, that, that word bus, for some reason, it bothers me. And so we just never learned that. It was like, no, four is good. I have my, my realistic mixer, probably got a second mic to put like two on the drums now and, and did that. And I mean, just quickly taught ourselves to make songs like that. So what's ironic about that story is so for the listeners that that may not know you is one you are the drummer mm-hmm. and the lead singer mm-hmm. in public squares and I I I believe you you write majority of the music as well I write everything yeah, yeah. and I mean I, writing in the sense that that I I write a song I, I show it to the guys that doesn't mean they they're not gonna add something or or that something might not change once it gets into their hands. Sure. So their personality, uh, you know, affects the songs in a big way. But I but I write everything. Yeah. And you guys and you also record all of your music, right? Yeah. And have you always recorded your music, or have you gone to studios before? Pretty much, I I have gone to studios a few times, but. Of all the recording that I've done, maybe only like 5% was done at, at other studios. I wasn't even ever in a real studio until I had already like put out records and stuff. I had no idea. There was one guy that we, that we had met 
um, who, uh, jumping a little forward, you know, after our four track band kind of ran its course, um, the the next band that we did after that was called Sidecar, and that's the uh, you know a band that that you know some people will remember uh, me for if if they know anything about what was going on in like the mid to late nineties through early two thousands. Um, but we recorded our first record there uh, in somebody else's basement. But he was like, he now has like a really nice commercial studio. His name's Eddie Tomeco. Um, I know him. You know Eddie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome guy. Um, my my brother like knew his brother. Something weird. I can't remember how how we found him, but um, he was doing like mobile eight track recording at first, and he came to like our house and recorded me and my brother doing like a few covers because my brother uh, wanted to do that and um um and so when it was time to do our first uh, sidecar record. I was like, well, I know this guy Eddie. He he made a, a demo for this other band, and he's got a, a real place in a in a basement now. And we went over there and and did sixteen songs in one weekend for I mean maybe four hundred bucks or something or whatever it was for a couple of days in, in Eddie's house. But it sounds awesome. Like I I can still put that one on and be like, this is a great sounding record. The guy that put it out. Um, had worked at Epitaph Records before that and used a lot of those connections. So he had this guy, Alan Yoshida, do the mastering on it. And he worked at, like, A&M and, like, mastered major label records and stuff. Nice hookup. So, yeah, so he gave him a deal because he had known him through through his Epitaph thing. Um, and so it was a, it was a, a good... Eight at like sixteen track basement recording that Eddie did because Eddie was really good even in a basement. But then having it mastered like that, like really gave it a nice you know uh, up to the standards of music that was being put out at that time. Yeah. Um. So you know that, but that, but I wasn't in a studio. I was still in some dude's house. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Which which can be a studio and 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 often is an awesome studio, but. But a commercial recording studio built for that purpose, I've barely even been in. Right. Well, and the reason I wanted to let the listeners know that is because uh, that's just, it's ironic to me that that was your very beginnings of I'm going to do this band thing, and you're just like I want to record. Yeah. So there's definitely something happening here where that's it's something you're very interested in besides the songwriting and the playing drums and singing. Like, yeah. In the early days. We were doing our our silly punk rock four track thing, and then my my older brother was much more into you know I love classic rock, but that was mostly what he was into, and he wasn't like a punker at all. Um, but he was my brother, and so we were always playing together. So we we always kind of like had a little band too that was more his style than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and we recorded. There was like someone had like. Of a real built-out studio garage, like somewhere out in Lake County. I think there was some someone had been in the Raspberries or something. You know, it was some like local musician names like that were running a studio, and I used like their house drum set. And I remember like for like forty-five minutes they were like tuning the rack tom, and 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 we were paying for that. And I was so like disgusted with that process. I was like, this is stupid. It's it's. It's a rack time I'm going to hit like four times really hard, and you're not going to tell what pitch it's in anyway. It's just not not playing like that kind of stuff 
or, or whatever. And it, it, meanwhile, we're not that serious. Like, let's get on with the show here. Mm-hmm. So I just got really aggravated with that thought early on. And it's just like, I would much rather just control this myself. And then, you know, a four track turned into an eight track. And then um, I started it, around the time that I was doing that we we had enough of a band together to start doing some gigs but like real clubs wouldn't book you so we would play like we would rent out like a little community center and put on our own shows is this when you were in sidecar this was before that this is still like the band that was born out of the four track thing we were called the attack fish okay it was you know it was like Mm -hmm. when you're 16 and you name Mm -hmm. your first band and um but then, like, we were, like, 18 and kind of, like, had learned to play correctly and everything. And, we, and like, I I wasn't sort of, like, monotone yelling anymore. Like, I was sort of learning to sing, and it was starting to sound like something, and you still have this stupid name. Um, but then this place on 185th opened up called the Gallery Cafe. Um, and uh, my buddy, uh, Chris Swanson... Um, who was a big fan of our silly tapes because he loves absurd music and we were very absurd. Um, but he was like, yeah, you guys should uh, play with my friend's band at, at this place, uh, Gallery Cafe. And I was like, yeah, dude. Like they, like, they have a PA and stuff already? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, God, we won't have right. to rent it. We won't have to do everything ourselves for once. This is awesome. Because before then it was, I mean, you had to like pay an off-duty cop to like watch the place. Like DIY was like... It's a scene when you need it, but it's also a lot of work when you're the one Ding the why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like you 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 can do it, but um when something gets presented to you like that, especially when you're young and you know, I never wanted to be someone who organized concerts. I wanted to just play. And if I had to organize the concert to play, mm-hmm. then I'll go ahead and do it. But if you're going to tell me that there's this place that's already got a stage and a PA, we're there. For sure. Um, And then, so that was the first time we actually started meeting other bands. We had no, you know, we had all these recordings that I was doing in my basement. We didn't know one single other band at all. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time we met other local bands. Um, And we played with this band called the Blue Ball Priests. (laughs) And uh, Grady was in it. Do you know Grady? I'm not sure. Everybody knows Grady. Um, but uh, and my good friend Lachlan was in it too, Lachlan McKinnon, um, mm-hmm. who I'm still great friends with and, from the Chargers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chargers and um, their their Blue Ball Priest band I think was a lot like our Attack Fish. Like it was their first silly thing with a stupid name, and um, then he uh, Lachlan put a band uh, together after that called Quitter, and we continued to play with them, and and um, they found out that we we had like a cassette tape, and they're like, "How'd you make that?" I'm like, "I got a four track." They're like, would you record us on it? Yeah. You know, how much? Like, I don't know. Ten bucks an hour or something? Like, what what does that cost? I have no idea. Sure. So I think it was probably ten bucks or whatever you got. Or so we would play with a band at the gallery and everybody would like get their forty bucks at the end of the night. And then half the time the forty bucks was going to me to make this band's demo like the next day. So it it worked out really cool in that. I did that, and then I could buy a couple more mics, and then I got an eight track, mm-hmm. and then like stuff started sounding a lot cooler, and then I bought like a compressor, you know, and and used that all the way up until 
I had a 24-track, three ADAT studio in my parents' basement. I mean, you know, now that I'm a parent, I can say how amazingly cool that was of them to let me do that. Sure, it's noisy. Dude, my parents had like... Every hardcore band in the area, like in the, in our basement, doing gang vocals on a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> and they just like never like as long as I gave them some money for the electric bill, they were cool, you know. Fantastic, yeah. That so, they supported you like that. That's great. Yeah. So um, so yeah, the 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 studio thing evolved with with the band itself, like side by side, not not because. I wanted to open a recording studio. That was never a part of the plan at all. It was a means to record my music and recording other bands was a cool way to connect to those bands and get to know them better. Um, But it was also a way to get a little money to buy more stuff so that my band sounded better. And then my friends' bands got to sound better too because I got better stuff and learned to do it. And so... It, it, it fueled itself and yeah to the point where today I'm still uh, I still record at home I've I've uh, built out uh, another basement now I took me a few years to get my last basement in the old house sounding right and then I moved and everything changed different shaped room different kind of drop ceiling all these new sure. things to, to work around when you're a, when you're a basement recordist. Um, and, uh, and I've gone so far, I don't remember where we started with the question. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember either. It was just kind of, it started off with, you know, when you got, when you first got started, it was bought a drum set and you're, you know, um, right, right. You, um, you know, a bar chord and you're, you know, just kind of figuring out how to yell on the microphone and, you know, start and, uh, how it, it be, which eventually became sidecar. Yeah. So, so what's, so sidecar, um, we we had a, a good friend of ours named Gavin, who was was kind of like you know you always got that buddy that like is a big supporter of your band even when you're starting out and not all that great like your one buddy loves your stuff, mm-hmm. um, and that was our buddy that loved our stuff and he um, he went to college down at Wright State in uh, Dayton, and he was like oh my my roommate it loves punk rock and has a little record label, and um, I played him some of your stuff, and he digs it. And it was right around the time that we were ending the the first silly band, and and just about to start uh, Sidecar. And uh, he was like, I, we're, "I was like, well, we're just starting this new thing, so you know, we'll we'll record a few things and play it for him." And he heard it and was like, "I'll put this out as a seven inch." And I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we just everything was just us. Recording everything ourselves, putting out our own shows, duplicating our own tapes, like, and then like, oh my god, you're gonna pay to put out our record? Like, what? I just remember there was no like, just more like humbling, like wonderful, heartwarming feeling. Like, wow, someone believes in this silly thing I started doing in my basement enough to put their own money into it, and that's really really cool. Yeah. So that that was really when it was like. Well, I guess right before Sidecar started, um, I guess the, my, my first glimmer that, that this could actually go somewhere was I, in the strangest way, I ended up trying out for a band in California that I really liked and was a fan of called Down by Law. 
Um, mm-hmm. And they were on Epitaph, and they had their first three records out, and and were just this was like right when the offspring was first blowing up and they were on epitaph. And so it seemed like any band on that label had that same potential. And, um, I had a short lived band before that, um, that I, I only sang a little bit, uh, and was more the drummer of the band. And it was a lot more of that faster skate punky type of stuff. Um, cause I was like the one drummer that, that they knew that could play that beat fast. Um, so we, we made a, we made like a cassette and the band fizzled out, but my buddy that I knew from Epitaph because he sent me ads for the DIY fanzine I had been doing, which I don't talk about much, but it was just another silly thing that I wanted to do because I, I do art for a living and it was fun to like make a DIY silly magazine. So I ended up like somebody had told me that was also doing a fanzine that if you contact record labels, they'll get you into shows for freeze. If you, if if you interview their bands and take pictures and put them in your fanzine and all you have to do is send them a copy of your fanzine to prove you did it. So I started doing that. And not only did I get to get into the shows and stuff, but I made this friend who worked at the label who'd be like, you want three ads this, this issue at 20 bucks a pop. And it'd be like, you're going to send me 60 bucks, dude. What? Like it felt like, totally swindling like this free money. Cause all I was doing is photocopying like 25 copies of this little fanzine and stapling it together. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is sweet. I'm getting into shows for you. This dude's sending me checks for 60 bucks for running ads that who knows who's seeing. Like, um, so it was it, it, it kind of a funny little thing, but Hey man, I, I, I made the zines. Um, but I, I met this dude, Tony and, and Tony, when I, and I would talk on the phone, uh, for some reason, we just really got along and hit it off. And and he had a copy of my band's demo that I played drums on. And he's like, "Man, you uh, you really came along fast. Like this is so like your drumming is so much better than than the the previous stuff." I was like, "Oh yeah, thanks. I, you know, I play a lot." Um, and he was like, "Hey, uh, no one really knows this yet, but Hunter left Down by Law. Hunter was was Down by Law's drummer uh, on the previous record. And I really liked that record a lot, and I really liked his drumming too. But at the same time, I knew I could do it. So I was like, oh, man, I'll do it.' And he's like, oh, 'I'll send your demo over.' I'm like, whatever, dude. Like you just, you know, yeah, talking like schmoozy, mm-hmm. whatever, like L.A. guy, like yeah, whatever. You'll send the tape over, right? Well." So Down by Law was um, and still technically is fronted by Dave Smalley, who had also sang for All, who was one of my favorite in the world bands. It also sang for Dag Nasty, which was one of my favorite bands. And Dave Smalley called me. No shit. And he was like, yeah, uh, Tony and Jeff uh, sent me over this little package and told me about you. You're in Cleveland, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, just my jaw is still on the ground. I'm like, why why Dave call me, you know? And he's like, well, um, I mean, if if this worked out, would you move here? Like, yeah. <laughs> of course. Okay, yeah, yeah. I guess. And I I was 20, and I had never been on an airplane before. Oh, wow. So he's like, well, um, we'll buy you a plane if you can get a hold of a drum set to try out a plane ticket if if you can get a hold of the drum set. So Tony uh, was in a band, and he's like, I'll get you his drummer's set to, to use for the audition. And I got my first plane ride flying out to try out for them. 
And uh, long story short, they called me afterwards and said it was either you or a guy that already lived here. Oh, wow. And he already lives here. Maybe they knew him or something, or he was just local? Uh, I think the bass player was friends with him, but they literally said, we'd love to have either of you in the band, but he already lives here. Yeah, wow. And you'd have to move your whole life out here, and probably that would take a few weeks. And Imagine how different things would have turned out for you if that had worked out. Yeah, it's hard to think about things like that. Sure. Um, You know, I am where I am, and I'm a very happy person, so... um, you know, it's it's. I get to tell that cool story now, and I have the cool memories of it. I'm still friends with Dave. Um, I got I I went back out to L.A. a couple more times just to hang out with Dave because we became friends. Because he was very explicit in like, uh, you know, you're not going to be in the band, but let's keep in touch and whatever you do next musically, I want to hear it. And um, he. When we'd make records, I'd send him demos, and he'd give me feedback, and um, it was uh, it was very cool. When we'd be on tour, and uh, he lived in Virginia, and we'd pass through and play a show in his town, we'd stay at Dave Smalley's house. You know what I mean? Like that was just there. It, crash pads don't get much cooler than like your heroes putting sure. you up for the night when you're on tour. Right. So it's it's always something that was like I never I never let it stop being cool. Um, you know, we that on a on a future tour after that we 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 stayed at Bill Stevenson uh from Descendants and all in Black Flag and the list goes on. But um Bill put us up because I, I, I got to know Bill over the years and that was another thing where it was like, I can't believe we're at Bill Stevenson's you know, <laughs> like we never stopped being like sure like awestruck nerds even, you know, in those situations. But it's more fun if you appreciate it in that way, you know. Yeah, so so to to explain why I went through that whole whole bit, um the as soon as I put the phone down and looked and told my buddies who were over yeah, I'm not joining Down by Law and explained it to them. And I was just like, All right, well, what's the next band? And that's how Sidecar happened. Got it. It was like, okay, I'm not doing that, but I've now seen how close I've been to being in a band on a big label like that and touring. And now let's let's do it. Let's let's do it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 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 last incarnation of the um, of the silly band, the first band, was me, Steve, and Brett uh, on guitar, Steve on bass. And so we pretty much just picked that back up. We made our first record with just the three of us. So it, it was it was the old band with a new name and a new perspective and you know and all that. And everybody had gotten better and, and kind of learned how to write songs. And uh, and then we added a second guitar player after we made our first record because we recorded the first record as if we had two guitar players. Um and that guitar player was Billy. Um and Sidecar was three quarters, th- well, three quarters of public squares were in Sidecar. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 the same three of us without Brett. Um, and I and I love Brett and uh, talk to him all the time still. Um, so yeah, that Sidecar was was born out of that you know that sort of opportunity that I got mm-hmm. and uh, and was a little bit of a roller coaster in 
many ways. But it's very motivating when you have an opportunity like that. Like even though it didn't work out, I could see how it's like okay. Yeah, well, it was a it was a very quick journey from. I've never even met another band. To, I'm now in a van with someone whose records I own, mm-hmm. and I might be in their band. Like that was it was only. I, I, I got a drum set when I was 15, and I was doing that audition when I was 20. And so it was five years before I decided, you know, I found a $40 drum set. Mm-hmm. I was always yapping to my buddies about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a drummer. And one friend finally was just like, called me up. And he's like, you're always talking about being a drummer, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you got 40 bucks? I was like, yeah, I think I got like, yeah, right about 40 bucks probably. He's <laughs> like, all right, I'll come pick you up. I know this dude Tim's got a drum set. He'll let go for 40 bucks. And it had enough to get started. And yeah, so within that amount of time to to get to witness a little bit of that world and get a little taste of that was like, mm-hmm. ooh, I like that. Like, let's yeah. let's do whatever we got to do to make this happen. And, right. You know, and then a year within a year of that, a seven inches out, we're buying a van as a band, which was strange. You and a couple of your buddies, mm-hmm. you know, are making a purchase together. <laughs> so you guys did some touring in that van. Yeah, yeah. Um, as much, I mean, honestly, as much as as we knew how to like figure out how to do, mm-hmm. that's the thing. Is a lot of people say like, just go on tour. It's like, oh. I, oh yeah, that sounds great. Did you have the book your own life? Oh book yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was one of I was like one of the Cleveland contacts for book your own fucking life too. Mm-hmm. So, um, which if nobody knows what that was, it was Maximum Rock and Roll basically compiled a book of DIY tour booking contacts or zines or whatever everything you would need that the internet now provides you in a magazine that would come out like quarterly or every six months or something. Mm. Um, but that's why I had every band under the sun sleeping in my basement and and made friends that I still have to this day. And I have friends that live in Ottawa, Canada, that I consider my great friends because I was in Book Your Own Fucking Life and they were coming through on tour. And I helped them with a show, put them up for the night, and we're still friends. Like, yeah. I love that so much. Um, that's if that doesn't exist anymore because of the internet, then I'm a little sad. But it probably just does in a different form. I wonder we'll have to look that up afterwards. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't. I don't know if it's obsolete or not. Um, it's yeah. There's probably just like a forum or a yeah or a Twitter at or something. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I'm sure it, it exists in many forms, but um, yeah that 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 was an awesome time. And then, uh, so how long did Sidecar, Sidecar last? Uh, that was started in 95 and ended in 2003. Um, we, we, we toured as much as we could. Every record we put out was kind of like on a different label. Um, our buddy's roommate's label ended up putting out a couple things for us. And I love Steven so much that put out, uh, he had what else records. Um, he did some really cool stuff for us. The first record was Tony that had left epitaph and it was like, Oh, he's got epitaphs connections. And then there was this rumor that like, we were on a subsidiary of epitaph and all the, there was, and we were like, no, we're not like our label guy actually left there and probably 
like on bad terms. <laughs> so it wasn't even that great a connection. But but he only put out like two or three records and stopped doing a label. So that didn't really go anywhere. But we had a record out. And then that record got us our second record label. Uh, this label that was born out of it was a it was one of the early, if not the first, like punk online record stores. It was called Fast Music. Okay. It was fastmusic.com. I hated that name. <laughs> um, which totally got taken over by um, the other one that the, the the actual punk record online store that like did really well. I can't remember the name of it right now. I can't remember um, either. But that one, like the other one, did really well. Um, but so, but they the guy had like investor money for his website or something, and he decided to do a label too. Um, put out our record, was like insanely gung ho about it, and then just like decided that if bands didn't scream, he didn't like them anymore, and mm. like just changed his opinion. But the label manager who worked for that label, this wonderful girl uh, Camille, who had been in the industry for years. Uh, she had a label called Grass Records that she got like bought out by an investor who forced her out of her own label and changed the name to Wind Up Records and signed Creed. Oh no shit! So that was Camille's <laughs> label that she had started. Wow! That ended up that and no longer hers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but she so she had been in the industry. She had worked for like Dutch East India. Um, the uh, a record distributor at Homestead Records, which was a label, and she loved us, but hated that fast music, like gave up on us or whatever. So she was like, "I want to hear your next thing. We'll see where I'm at." Because she was always going to work in the industry or whatever. She had moved to a different label, um, that was new again, and she's like, "You guys aren't exactly what they're putting out." But they're going to let me have my own little subsidiary mm-hmm. for the stuff that I like as kind of like a little gift to me for running their label for them. They were like rich Brooklyn kids who had daddy's money to do a label, and they really liked indie rock. Okay. And so they had enough – somehow they had enough money to like get like a Guitar Wolf record like to put out for like some cred. Yeah, yeah. So that made their label seem like pretty legit. And they ended up putting out a record for the fall – and and I, I I really like one of the songs on that record. They they, they did put out some cool indie rock stuff, um, but they the guys that controlled the label didn't get us at all. Like they called us like tattooed weirdos, hmm. and compared to most of my friends, we're not that <laughs> tattooed and weird. <laughs> um, you know, especially by today's standards, uh, nothing uh, nothing above the neck. Um, so you know that was another thing that. They had Caroline Distribution. Like, we signed a, a record contract that was like 25 pages long with a glossary that was written up by the law office of like Clive Davis's son, oh, Travis Davis. Like, wow. I still have the letterhead with our contract on it and stuff. And, um, and again, it was like, oh man, I think this one's legit. Like, this is the real deal. Like, we got Camille, she knows what she's doing. Apparently, these dudes have dad's money. Caroline's going to distribute it. Well, I guess they had a meeting where they played the Caroline people, all the stuff they were going to put out. And the indie rock dudes got bummed that Caroline liked our record the best. And I guess to kind of spite it, just wouldn't even run an ad, wouldn't do anything. So 
she would like sneak and send us CDs to go on the road with. She's like, this is like kind of all I can do for you. Like, I can't get you tour support. Like, she did muster up like 500 bucks. Like, she kind of like guilted them into giving us 500 bucks to go on tour with. And she would like sneak send me some, uh, you know, boxes of CDs to go on tour with. And it's cool on her to try to, her best to hook you yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And so we did a few more tours, tried to push that. And then we were just desperate to like, we wanted to open a tour for somebody. We had done a bunch of our own tours that we booked to the best of our ability. But, you know, we could only maybe handle booking like, nine days to two weeks at the most because it's all we knew how to book and it's all we could afford to like not have an income right. for. Um, and so it was just like we were just looking for like either a booking agent or a label that would get you a booking agent or anything like that. So <clears throat> through some people that I know, I got asked if I wanted to go work for Face to Face on the Warp Tour and sell their merch for them. And I said, I will do it if I can press sampler CDs of my own band and put them out for free at, at your merch table. That's all I, I want enough money to like live. Sure. And I want to be able to put a box of free CDs. I was like, I won't bother people about them. I won't ever put it in front of selling your stuff. Like I'll do the best job I can for you. Um, but that's what I want. And cause I, everything for me was just, an opportunity for my band. I wasn't interested in being someone's merch guy at all. I was interested on in trying to get my band either onto a tour like that or meeting some one of those bands that would maybe take a shine to us and and hey, you want to you know maybe you go on tour after that. You know that's all I was thinking of. Um, I ended up leaving that tour after a month because it was hellish being. It, Dude, don't be a merch guy. <laughs> well, I mean, be a merch guy if you're like if if you're not a musician. Um, well, and Warp Tour merch guy. I mean, you're or uh, gal, up, whoever you dude, are. You're out of the bus at hot. eight a.m. all day. You're the you're the first one out of the bus. You're tired at the end of the day. Maybe you get a shower like once all the rock stars have showered. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, and and at the end of the day, I'm just sad that I didn't get to play because mm-hmm. I got to watch everybody play. And then, you know, you're afterwards, you're meeting people and you're schmoozing or whatever. And, oh, what do you do? And I, I want to be like, oh, I drum and sing for this band Sidecar. But my real answer is I'm the merch guy for Face to Face. It's a bummer, you know. So, of course, I should have taken the shot at that. But um, I, I just, I didn't get along with the singer of the band at all. Um, they... I don't know. I don't like to get into it too much because yeah. I don't. I, I'm 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 not someone that wants to like oh to talk bad about like a sure a big band or whatever. But there were aspects of it that were way too much like frat hazing, mm. and I, I, I that's not what I was sure. into it for. <laughs> no, <laughs> like but, on day one, it was like, "Have you ever been on a tour bus before?" And I was like, "No." And they're like, oh, fresh fish. And they started like, and they were like, we're going to call you fish. And I'm like, no, you can't. I have a good friend that goes by that name. My friend, Matt Fish, everybody calls him fish. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's going to be way too confusing. I'm going to think you're t- calling me by my friend's name all the time. And so I finally convinced them not 
to call me. Fi- but I'm like, why do I need like a new guy nickname? Like, just let me sell your fucking merch. Like, <laughs> I'm a nice dude. Like, can we just talk about music and stuff? But right. I had to be like the lowly merch guy. You yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. And I, so I, I was just not down with that at all. But you were doing a great job of putting yourself in good opportunities, though. Clearly, like to progress your own band. Like you were, you were putting yourself out there with the yeah, zine, and- recording. You know, all the bands around town. Um, going on a tour like that, which, you know, like you said, you didn't want to be a merch guy, but hey, this is an opportunity. Maybe I'll meet people. Like, Yeah, I mean... Obviously you know, driven. Yeah, everybody will tell you, you know, well, it's it's who you know, and to an extent, I mean, yeah, you can't suck and then know people. Um, I, maybe sometimes you can. I don't know. I think there's <laughs> examples out there. Sure. Um, but... But you know, if you just sort of exist in your in your hometown, and this wasn't this wasn't a great hometown for us. We were like a an, an L.A. band in Cleveland. You know, we we stuck out. People just called us pop punk because they didn't know what else to call us. Like I never thought we were pop punk, especially what that became in the two thousands. Like I wasn't down with any of that mm-hmm. stuff, and I didn't even know who those bands were. Um, you know. It, Melodic punk, I have no problem with. Yeah, there's melody. Um, you know, we weren't we, we played the as fast as a hardcore band at times, um, but we weren't hardcore because there wasn't yelling and 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 all that. So um, I don't know. In in Cleveland, it seemed like there was like the sleazy punk scene or the hardcore scene, and we were uh, yeah. uh, definitely on the outside of any of that. So it's not like there weren't. Um, shows for us to play and eventually there was some other bands um you know thankfully there was like the unknown who who were in you know enough in the ballpark for us to become band friends with and mm-hmm. and do shows with and and along the way there'd be a, a a few others um that were enough in the vein to like you know give us some some peers um but for the most part it was like no i i Nothing against Cleveland, but I think our scene is somewhere else, and so I need to go try to find it. Cleveland's never been forgiving for melodic punk bands. Like, no. It, you're right. It's a hardcore Especially city. when it's, you all grew up in the suburbs, and mm-hmm. that somehow that gets held against you because that's where my parents bought a house in the 70s. You know what I mean? Like, It's a metal city. It really is. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, or, or again, like it seems like... And again, this isn't like a slight to anybody who makes this music or anybody who loves this music, but you are you are cool here if you are doing something ugly and dissident and experimental. Mm-hmm. And that's I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. That's right. a really cool scene, but I, it's not my scene. And if you're not in it, you're kind of a you know, you're kind of like, oh, the dorky pump punk guy or whatever. Like, I get it. Yeah. And that, that sucks, but it's like, okay, if that's what you want to put on us, all right, we'll just go, we'll try to do this somewhere else. Like, I'll go t- try to, you know, get on some other opportunity, go on tour and, 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 you know, just, you know, see uh, what the, what the rest of the country thinks of it. Sure. And then, okay, so how does Sidecar become public squares? Because, the time period that you're talking about is quite a bit earlier because Public yeah, Square's that, first EP, I believe, was 2014. Yeah. So there's a chunk of time there. To yeah. Um, Sidecar basically ends when I go and work on the Warp Tour. Um, we we had a drummer for the first time ever. 
because I got tired of people telling me how much bigger we'd be if I was up front, and they were probably right. It was a four-piece band. I was always in the back of the stage. No one could tell who was singing. And honestly, some of the music was so fast that there was no way I could get the breath to sing properly anyway. Um, I would hear board tapes back, and every time I go for a, a fill, if I'm singing, my voice would go, ah! Mm-hmm. You know, so I knew I wasn't singing as well as as I as I normally can. I'm sorry, I'm burping while I'm talking. <laughs> it's all good. Um, We're being crazy and chugging that, water over here. Fix that in post. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so we we had gotten this drummer, and like it wasn't. I'm not Neil Pert or anything, but. I play a certain way. I, I, I guess I play with a lot of gusto. Um, almost every drummer, even ones that really don't, love to say, I hit hard. Mm-hmm. It's, a, <laughs> it's kind of a dumb thing to say. <laughs> I mean, what, what's hard? You know, sure, sure. On a, is there a, you know, I hit this many pounds of, you know, per square inch pressure. Like, I don't know. I never measured it. But... When we would try out other drummers, everybody would be like, oh, this feels terrible. Like, it's just, it's like someone turned the volume down, you know? And Mm -hmm. even when he's playing it right, it's just, we can't even hear him. I learned to play up against those half stacks, and and I learned to play by playing along with either Zeppelin or the Descendants, because I wanted to play heavy, but I wanted to play fast. And so those were the two things I I played along to the most. Mm -hmm. Um, So we finally got this drummer that could, like, at least do it. Um, and it was like most of the way there. We were like, well, who get there? And I went on that tour and I told those guys like, keep practicing because I'm out there and every day I'm going to try to get us on something. I'm going to try to get us on the Cleveland stop of the tour. I'm going to find out who I have to talk to, to just be like, Hey man, I'm just a merch guy on this tour. But when it comes to Cleveland, my band's from there. Give us the, the shoebox stage at, 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 you know, 1 p.m. or whatever it is, like, sure, get, get me a little something for my time, here, you know? Yeah. Um, and every time I would, like, check back in, everybody would be like, no, nobody's done anything. Like, and then finally, um, the one, uh, Pete, uh, the other guitar player who had replaced Billy, he had started playing with the Unknown because their guitar left. And so he was, like, kind of, in, he was going to do both, but he was, in the midst of like learning all their songs. And then just one day Brett was like, I'm not getting together to practice with that kid on drums. I don't like him enough. Hmm. And I was like, and Brett's a really blunt guy. And that was fair. It's, it's honest. He didn't want to, he didn't, he didn't want to do that. Like without me being there, it was, I guess too weird. Like I, 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 I told him, I'm like, just go to my, the practice was at my house. I'm like, you know, I'll, you guys know how to let yourself in, go practice, you know, no one ever did it, and I left the tour anyway, and when I came home, I was just like, you guys, I just lived on the Warp Tour for a month with a bunch of the bands that we were sort of striving to be, and I don't, wa- I don't want to be it anymore. Mm. Um, that tour is great for a couple of the headliners, and everybody else is kind of miserable at the end of the night, and you're on this weird carnival Um and and I, I don't know. I just, it wasn't in me to do that anymore. Um, I was feeling boxed in by the genre. Um, 
I've always had really diverse taste in music. Um, we played that music because that's what the writers of most of the music wrote. And we liked and were into all that stuff too. Like we played fast drums because we loved Seven Seconds and Gorilla Biscuits and, you know, and, and like LA hardcore and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, we were just like getting lumped in with like, oh, you're kind of like one of those fat wreck bands or whatever. We're like, no, that's not what we're trying to be. I can't like, but apparently that's just, you know, you're shoving us in a pile and, and looking back, like at times I could see why they shoved us in that pile. You know, it was more like that sometimes. But I was, we were driving around in the van, like listening to Humble Pie and Guns N' Roses and <laughs> Queen. And, and I, I was like super into like, you know, I love Duran Duran like a lot. And, um, you know, Gary Newman and, and weird synthy stuff and Devo and, you know, I liked all kinds of stuff. So I, my, I, I had a much bigger record collection than, than the music we were playing would, would lead you to believe. And I was like, I want to, I want to try some of that stuff. And so at first it was just going to be pretty incestuous. A few of us, again, just kind of changing the genre up a little bit. And I was like, I was super into the jam and the who at the time. And I, I mean, I still love that stuff. I'm fucking dressed up like Keith Moon right now. <laughs> um, but, um, I was like, I, I'll, let's try some of that. Like, we can do that. Like, let's do like sort of like mod driven, the jam, like whatever. And so that ended up turning into a band called Living Stereo. And I ended up just singing for that band, but we went through a bunch of drummers um, until we finally got uh, Brian in and solidified a, a lineup after a few years. But that band had 14 members in and out of it um, over over the span from, from I guess, 2004 to 2011, I think, is, is technically the span, but it started and stopped so many times. Um, but so that, that band ended up being much more of like a 60s-influenced thing where I was just singing. Um, I played a little bit of like uh, new wavy sounding keys with my right hand only. I, I, I didn't know how to play. I just memorized where the notes were. Mm-hmm. And I, I would make little marks on the keys to help myself out. Um, but we did pretty good uh, uh, locally. That that band never really had big aspirations to like, I never solicited a record label or anything. It was just kind of like, let's just do it and, and see what happens. And... Um, I downsized my studio a bit. I just thought I was going to like, just let me see what it's like just to be a singer for a few years. Um, and I, my calluses all softened up on my hands. I wasn't, you know, I had a drum set. I would play on our demos sometimes, especially in when we'd be in, in between drummers, but I wasn't drumming a whole lot. Um, but, but we, we would play the Beachland and the grog shop and like early, early happy dog stuff. Um, we got to open for the Pretenders at the Agora once. Um, we opened for Rocky Erickson at the Beachland. Um, we got to do some really, really cool things like in town. And it was much, much more well accepted. In, it was the first time I felt accepted musically in Cleveland. Interesting. Because we weren't, we weren't the pop punk guys anymore. And at the time, 60s garage stuff was pretty damn cool. Yep. 
and and we probably were kind of like maybe we were doing it a bit because it was pretty happening at the time. Like maybe we're a bit guilty of that, but at the same time, I loved all that stuff before that. I love it all now. So I just I wanted to play that kind of music. And at the time, like the hives were were jumping and they had a couple amazing records out. And so there was a little bit of like, well shit, like if we can do that style, and there's also actually kind of a scene happening for it right now, double cool. Cause sure. we're I'm so used to there not being a scene for what I'm doing that it was really nice to have a scene for it. Like yeah. Beachland, like we were always one of their first calls when that kind of band would be coming through. You know, it was it was really nice. And um, but because of so many members in and out, we didn't write and record as much as as I would as I wanted to in that time span. It was too much teaching people songs every time they'd be in and out of the band. Mm -hmm. So we made one really solid record, and then we kind of broke up before we finished our second record. Um, the guitar player, the the other guitar player, Brent. Uh, who I'm still good, great friends with. He owns uh, Guitar Riot uh, up on Superior. Go check out guitarriot.com. There you go. Um, we'll plug. That's uh, <laughs> but um, yeah. He he he. I I think he just was feeling over it for a bunch of reasons, and he bailed. And there was a thought for a second of like, well, we can get a guitar player and keep going. But I was like, nah, dude. That's once he's gone, I can't, I can't try to rehash it again. And sure. And I was really starting to miss the drums. Um, I had filled in for a buddy of mine's band, uh, this heavy band called Venom and James. Um, they were a bunch of friends of mine, uh, Joe, um, who is now playing uh, in, a, I think, a couple different things, but his, I think his main band is playing bass for a band called Slow Wake. Um, but Joe would play on our four-track stuff when he'd be home from college. Um and every time he'd come over, all of a sudden we'd we'd start trying to sound like uh, like Earth AD misfits and Danzig <laughs> and stuff because that's he that's that was totally his uh, yeah. his thing. We loved it too, but but it was way like he was the heavy guy, um, not fat. <laughs> I got you, yeah, heavy yeah. music guy. Um, so I I had I had kind of like re fallen in love with playing drums when I started filling in for them when they didn't have a drummer. Um, and just, uh, so we started a band, Jeff, who was playing bass uh, for Living Stereo, and Brett, who had been in Sidecar, technically started Living Stereo with me, but bailed after a f the first few months. Um, he came back into the mix, and so it was me and Jeff and Brett, and we did a band called Night Sweats. Um, and I was very guilty of being really impatient, really sad that living stereo was gone because we had, we had just opened for the hold steady at house of blues. And I thought we did really great that night. Like mm -hmm. we really killed, we were the only opener. I, I just, you know, we weren't always on fire. I, I don't think we had a great success rate, maybe, you know, 65, 70%. And then, you know, we had some clunkers in there, you know, depending on what pills somebody would take, <laughs> not me. I won't name any names, but he since came clean. All right. Um, but, um, 
yeah, so I was just like, I wanted to get back on the horse so bad. So I was just like, I want to sing and play drums again. I don't care how it looks on stage. We'll figure it out. And let's start writing and start recording. And I really, really rushed everybody. Mm-hmm. We ended up making a, a, a solid record, but it's just, you know, then Jeff couldn't make it to practice much because he managed the Beachland, and so he was always there. He could barely make it to practice. And Brett really wanted a second guitar player, but then I just felt like it was going to turn back into sidecar. And the whole thing just, like, was frustrating me because I wanted, I just didn't want to stop. You know, I just yeah. wanted to go. And and it was too slow. And so I I was talking to, you know, my now wife at the time, uh, she was living with me, you know, girlfriend, whatever. Um, I was just like, I just need to go down in the basement and start writing and recording songs by myself and not rely on anyone else. And she's like, yeah, I go. Mm-hmm. Go now, right now. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll see you in a couple hours. And I that was Public Squares. Oh, fantastic. So I, I went down. The first song I hammered out that night, I had a demo that night of the first song. The first song I wrote was called She Let Me In, and it's the first song on the first EP. Mm-hmm. And I made a demo all by myself. I was just going – I was never going to be a solo project. I wanted to name it and everything. Um, but I, was, I wasn't concerned with who was going to be in it yet or anything like that. But I told a couple friends about it. Um, one was uh, my friend Dylan, who was in the Suede Brothers. He had done a Halloween band with me at the Beachland. He sang for a Sabbath thing that we did. I drummed. He sang, and we really enjoyed doing music together. So I sent him the the couple demos that I made in the basement. And I was like, I know we talked about doing something again. Like, do you want to come replace my my stiff guitar with your good guitar? He's like, all right, yeah, I'll learn these and come over and replace the guitar. So then I was talking to Don DePew, who had been in the earlier um, version of Living Stereo. He played on our first record, and I love Don. He's a musical genius, and I grew so much from from making music with him. Um, I told him that Dylan was going to play on the stuff that I was writing, and he's like, what kind of stuff? And I was like, oh, like fun punk rock and roll like uh, like nodding at the undertones and he was like you got Dylan from the Suede Brothers to play guitar on stuff that sounds like the undertones and I was like yeah I guess he's like that sounds cool you want me to play bass I was like yeah I do so kind of had a band all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you know but it was like I wasn't asking anybody for much of a commitment come over and play better than I did on those instruments. And so that's the first three song EP that we put out and then hopped on a show and they said, okay, we'll do a show and then hopped on another show. And we, oh, then we're doing shows, you know, you know, it's just the balls, the balls sort of rolling. Um, and I'm continuing to write songs and the whole time I'm just like, nobody don't, you don't have to write anything. Like I got this. Cause in the back of my mind, I'm just like, when they leave, I'm going to keep this going. I'll, I'll find somebody else to do it. And that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. And I love both of those guys still. Um, I love them musically, the whole deal. Our parting of making music together was really only because they didn't have the time or the motivation like I did. Don and I talked endlessly about doing some sort of more full-time music thing together, but 
I wanted to get my songs out there, and I didn't want to wait for anybody. And I think Don wanted to get in a room with a guitar and some drums and see what happened. Mm-hmm. And I, could, I didn't have time to do both of those things. But doing that with Don is very fun. And I wish I would have had the time. Like, yeah, when we get together in a room, we make some, you know, cool stuff. It doesn't sound like that's where you're, where you were at. Yeah, I just, I, I needed to get this out. Like, I needed my thing that was that my fully realized thing. And and so we did the second EP. Like, I think Dylan played some of the guitar. I played some of the guitar. Don played some of the guitar. Don played all the bass. But like, they were like, yeah, we don't really want to do like. A Wednesday at Spitfire, and I'm like, but I want to do everything, you know. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it was like, all right, well, I love you guys, and I might still call you, you know, to see if you want to do a gig or or help me record something. But I'm gonna try to turn this into something more. So then, version two was I had Jeff, who had been in Living Stereo, come back in. Even though I knew he still didn't really technically have the time, I love him and I wanted to play with him anyway. And so I was like, ah, we'll make it work. And uh, Matt Molichek, who had been in Ohio Civil War, uh, I asked Lachlan if he wanted to do it. And he's like, I'm not ready to be back in a band yet, um, but call Matt. Sounds like it's up his alley. So I called Matt. Yeah, I'll do that. So then version two of the band was that. And we did an okay amount of shows, uh, one more EP. Um, Jeff wasn't finding the time. He did not want to quit, but he wasn't finding the time. You know what I mean? And so it was just kind of like a conversation like, dude, I love you. We're not done making music together, Yeah. but you don't have the time. And he's like, yeah, I know I don't have the time. Like, and it was like a sad, like realization of sure. like, we don't have the time to do this like we should be. And, and, and I, I needed more than that. So, um, it was around that same time that I started getting a lot of ideas of where I wanted to take things aesthetically. Um, I'm a singing drummer. I was setting up up front, which helps a lot. I even have a clear drum set. You could see more of me. Mm-hmm. People want to <laughs> identify with the singer. All right, fine. I'll play Vista Lights. I love them anyway. Um, How long did it take you to start putting some lights into those drums. Well, so, so yeah, so, oh, lights inside the Vista yeah, lights? Yeah, in the, in the drums. I was never about that. I think they look hokey. <laughs> they they used to sell a, a, a version of the Vista lights called the, like, Tivoli set or something, and they had built-in lights, but I always thought it looked like a carnival ride. I, <laughs> I, I don't like the, like, dotted look of it. I got you. Um, that, that was that version of Public Squares, version two, where... I, I felt like we were we were we had something cool going on sound wise. I was happy with where my songwriting was going. I was really embracing being a singing drummer and not letting it feel like a hindrance anymore. You know, like just own it, like make it something that's fun for people to watch. And so I was just like, I want to make this even more fun to watch. And and I love bands. I love bands obviously for their music but if you give me a religion to adhere to as well oh man let me sink my teeth in sure yep queen is my favorite band and their 
the the mystery wrapped in that band and the the way that they came out on stage with these winged costumes and they're like gods, you know what I mean? Like they're not. You know that they're dudes in t-shirts tomorrow. Sure. But whoa, and 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 I grew up on Alice Cooper and what the hell is he and yeah. and he's cutting his head off every night, but the tunes are great. You know, and 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 even, you know, Zeppelin, like everybody had when they did, you don't really think of like Zeppelin as a as a conceptual band until you really start thinking about it. And you're like, they all gave themselves symbols and they all had their own like personality, like Jimmy's this wizard, and you know, like I love that. And I only recently decided to be okay with the word religion. I just want everything to be a religion now. <laughs> like why shouldn't it be? Sure. It, religion is just what it's a story you decided to say, yeah, I'm good with that story. Yeah. You know, and then you're in a tent yelling it at people. But <laughs> so like those are all I I love all, I'm into all those religions. You know what I mean? The dis, the descendants, a punk band that seemingly on the surface were just some dudes in street clothes like not having a fashion sense at all had a religion like they had you are into coffee and <laughs> and singing about like not being able to get girls and all this and this angst and this fast surf rhythm and this whole like you know utilitarian like not caring about the fashion is the fashion and so like oh man I love discovering all that and then you just you know I discover the jam and not only do I love that they're like a punk take on the who but they do the mod thing and they're in suits and then there's their religion and they're the mod religion and you know what I mean like you can call them scenes or you can call them whatever it's just fun for me to call it a religion but certain bands definitely do stand out as like a yeah, rock and roll that, religion that, that they had something else mm -hmm. that it was a thing to get into like I love their record, I know the lyrics, and I'm gonna stare at these pictures in the record and imagine what was going on there. And you know, like I have a tattoo of the inside of Queen's News of the World, the robot that that seems like in recent pop culture has sort of like made a comeback. Like there was a whole Family Guy episode about the Queen robot from that, and I was like, <laughs> that's my tattoo. Like how weird. Um, but like I, st I have that tattoo because I stared at that record, like wondering, like, what's that robot I want to kill these people for? And <laughs> I'm listening to the music, and it's all a visual, and 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 so around that time, I was, um, you know, wanting to like, what can our thing be? And and it it was influenced by a lot of things, but the biggest clicker for me is I was watching a. a like a in-studio TV performance of uh, Gary Newman and Two Boy Army. It was before he made Here in My Car, which that's a great record too. But mm -hmm. um, he had a band called Two Boy Army, and they like their drummer played real drums. He kind of tried. You could tell they tried to make him play like a machine almost. Like, yeah. But it's real drums, so I like that. Sure. Like, I like when it's real, even if you're trying to sound stiff like that's a cool yeah that's a cool feel so i was really um digging into that stuff and i saw that that tv performance and i was like they like i can't even tell what year it is in this they seem like they're from somewhere else like they, they just 
they they look otherworldly. Like that's what I want, but I don't want to steal their thing. And I want a thing as big as the misfits thing, but I don't want to steal their thing. Sure. Too many people have already done that. Like, oh, black and skulls, and we'll sing about blood, and you know, no, like you're not doing it as good as them. Stop. Like, it's their thing. Right. Do your thing. You know, find your. I wanted to find what our thing was, and so I started around that same time. You know, lineup two wasn't wasn't working out, and I was hinting at, at these ideas, and. I, you know, I love Matt, and it's really fun to play with him, and we still keep in touch. Again, I, I'm so fortunate that I love everybody that's been in this band to this day, even though they're they're not in it now. Um, but Matt was like, I, I get what you're saying, but I, I just want to just wear a T-shirt and get up and play guitar. And I'm like, yeah. And, and he, he was like, I don't know. i just not really been feeling like doing it much anymore anyway. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's okay. I, I don't want to drag anybody around into it's something they don't want to do. So just pure happenstance, both Steve and Billy, who were in Sidecar with me, who I've remained friends with over all these years, were both willing to do it. And then I said, all right, there's kind of one catch. I want to do a very visual thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly what it is, but I already have a lot of these thoughts in my head. I had already written a song on the second EP called I Know Lots of Humans. And that was... the and, and actually, the first EP had a song called Blindly. And that song's along the same lines. I had this theme in my head of not... I, I would sort of joke sometimes, like, I don't think I belong here, or I don't think I'm the same... Like, well, you know, if you ever get the feeling, like, when you're in a... If you were, like, I don't know, in a public space... And you see a lot of these people, and you're just like, I don't know. I don't feel like these are the same as me. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm better or special, but I just don't feel comfortable here. Like, these are not, I don't know. Either they're aliens, or I am, or or something's up. And so I had written a couple songs that sort of touched on that feeling. And so I told Steve, I was like, you know, what if we almost gave the impression that we were either from like another planet or another dimension or just going off this theme of like, I don't feel like a human because if, if, if a human is what I'm seeing every day, like, you know, on the internet and all this stuff that I, there's no way I can be that. Yeah. That's not me. I can't relate to that. Yeah. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So, and he just goes, why hint at it, dude, let's just fucking go for it. And I was like, and I'm, I'm a, you know, I make my living as a visual artist, you know, I'm a graphic artist and, and so I was like, well, God, that gives me endless fodder for, for visuals. Um, and so we started thinking about, like, well, what's that look like? And, and what can we use for that? And it's a story that we sort of just started to make up and write. And sometimes we think it's hilarious and we laugh. Um, but the longer I've done it, the more I've actually let it become what I'd consider to be my religion. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in the way of, of I found some sort of God or whatever. I just kind of had this thought. I started listening to a lot of stuff about philosophy. I discovered only a few years ago that I really enjoy that. 
I didn't know, really know what that was before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, that probably sounds dumb to a lot of people, but it just sounded like a class you take in college. That I think I, it just has. I, take. I, I think it's just something with as you get older, it be, actually becomes very interesting. Well, you know, and I, I I've struggled over the years with. Um, what I guess I, I would call like existential dread or whatever, which I, I, I hear that term pop up more and more. But I, I had like, I don't know, weird depressive times where I was very, um, but couldn't feel happy for long periods of time because everything felt meaningless and all this. I, it, it's hard to describe that without it sounding cliche, but it was a lot of the uh, uh, my own pursuit to to overcome some of that stuff that was... Um, paralyzing at times, um, and and so I kind of came to the realization that we're one of two things: we're really fancy robots, or we're souls controlling these really cool spaceships. And I'd rather be the second one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's. What started as let's do kind of a fun alien thing is more grown into what I'd consider to be like my philosophy or religion, and I and I welcome everybody else to make up their own. Don't follow mine; mm-hmm. it's mine. Sure, <laughs> I, I totally get that. Have your own. If you're really lazy, yeah, okay, pick one of the ones that's already there. But <laughs> I think you're missing out on a hell of an opportunity to to come up with your own or or take one that has like a lot that you like and then like edit. Why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Like I don't I don't get it. Edit and make it fit you. Yeah, this this idea that, you know, um I'm going to be punished for this in the next life is hey, come on, that's really childish. It's silly. Sure. Let's get off of that and let's have some fun with wondering what our existence is all about. Mm-hmm. And so it's you know, like when you when when I was coming in here and you asked, you know, do I do this, you know, in character or not? I mean, you know, it's not so much like yeah, it's a character I gave a name to, sort of. It's also just like a nickname, the inner voice in your head, mm-hmm. because it might be the soul that's controlling your your cool spaceship. You know, yeah. so so it's it's deep, but I don't want it. I don't want it to be like deep, like I don't know, like woo woo deep. Like it makes <laughs> it, no, it makes it makes so much more sense now because that's one of the cool things about having a podcast like this is that I can sit down and talk to some of my favorite bands and learn these things. Yeah. So when I use the word like, you know, are you going to do an interview as Brandon or as your persona? And it was, but now the way you break it down. Or the way you've broken yeah, it down, it makes way more sense. Like, yeah, we 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 came up with the with like okay, what is our what is our character name? If you know, if you want to call it that, I didn't really know what to call it, like stage name or character or whatever. I I'm really hesitant to let it, and I know it's hard, and I'm sure that it gets mistaken for this a lot. But I don't I don't like to have it look like I don't like the word costume. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it in the theatrical sense might be somewhat accurate that it makes me think of Halloween and, and it's not, it's not that kind of thing to me. It's how do you visually communicate this, these thoughts of, of what would it be like to be a being that inhabits 
this body and maybe it travels elsewhere and then kind of allow yourself to write a cool story about it. And so our second record ended up being a concept record because why not? Because I I love Quadrophenia Mm -hmm. and I really love um, Jimi Hendrix's Axis Bold Bold as Love. And I know that's not really a concept record, but the way that it starts out with that weird little interview and then he actually kind of like hints that Jimmy's an alien. <laughs> and so that makes you wonder, like, well, shit, man, maybe my thing's right. Maybe Jimmy was an alien. You know what I mean? Maybe all these geniuses that that got to leave at the age of 27 were aliens. Right. And then what is an alien? Right. Someone who isn't from here. Maybe none of us are from here. Sure. Maybe half of these people that I don't feel like I'm anything like, maybe they are fancy robots. Yeah. It, maybe, maybe, it, maybe. Why not, man? Isn't this more fun? Yeah, any then, of it could be true. And like it's a hell of a lot more fun than just following the same old stuff you're told for, for generations and generations. Like, yeah, yeah, and, and think outside the box. Yeah, and so I can I can write the songs that come to my head. It it doesn't influence the style of songs that we're doing. I don't have to lock into what we said our genre was gonna be. You know, when we were doing sidecar and we were known for you know, fast drum beats and, and all that stuff. And then we made a record without as much of that. There's this, oh, they're what are they, trying to be a rock band now? Oh, I liked them when they went fast. Well, don't don't put me in a corner, man. <laughs> right. So I want to write whatever the hell I want to write, and the thing that glues it together is this aesthetic. And so we can evolve and do all kinds of stuff. And so the first EP was like really like I wanted the first EP to sound like the Who's Live at Leeds. Really like four mics on the drums, loose drum sound, one guitar, one bass, vocal, some harmonies, go. Like that's it. And mm-hmm. and and then the concept record was, you know, more layered synths and I built all of these things in between the songs. Um I basically wanted to make Queen's Flash Gordon soundtrack, but with good songs. <laughs> yeah. And Queen's Flash Gordon soundtrack had one good song, and it's not the theme from Flash. That's just an intro. It's it's neat sounding, but it's not a song. The Hero, on the other hand, is an awesome song. Mm-hmm. So go listen to Queen's The Hero, which is the one good song on their soundtrack that I do love to listen to, but mostly because it's corny. Yeah. <laughs> and their synth stuff was cool, but Queen shouldn't have done a synth sci-fi concept record but that's part of why it's awesome um so yeah our 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 second record was was that um and i really am happy with with how it came out as a unit um we put it out on on vinyl and side one is continuous with no space and side two is continuous with no space. So when we put it out online, I put it out that same exact way. Where track one is all of side one of the LP. Track two is all of side two of the LP. And then all of the songs by themselves without any of the stuff in between after that, in case you don't want to have to listen to 15 minutes to get to the song you like, you can just skip to it. And what's the title of the EP? Uh, that's a full length, and that's called Powerful. that's called from up there. Right on. Okay. Um, and that was conceptually, I, I didn't write all of the songs f- 
for the concept. I already had a few songs that I noticed had things to do with each other thematically. And so I said, if I can write a few more songs and string this together into a bit of a narrative, I can fill it in with narration in between the songs. And and I can actually, like, nobody has the time. But if they did, I can actually explain to you what the whole thing means. <laughs> no one's going to want that. But I could, I promise. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I, I reached out to a bunch of friends, um, some local musician friends, um, some other people that I knew um, that I just had in mind to do things. Um, the The intro is actually read by uh, Steve's wife's uncle, who was a retired professional voiceover actor who had done voiceovers for like David Letterman and stuff. Oh, fantastic. He was actually in a couple of Letterman's sketches, mm -hmm. but he dusted off his old mic and recorded the intro that I wrote for him. That's awesome. Um, we had a, a friend of mine, Istavan, uh, if you know him, he does like solo, um, all kinds of stuff. He does acoustic stuff. He plays the sitar. Um, but he had showed me he had one of those modular synths that you can like plug all the cool wires into. And he came over for like a couple hours one night and I just let tape roll and let him plug wires in and make sounds. And so I used that and layered it into all the stuff in between the songs. Um, Bill Stevenson that I mentioned before, he did a narration for me. So we actually have a record with a member of Descendants and Black Flag on it, but he's not in a song. <laughs> he's between two songs. Nice. Um, uh, another girl named Annie Hardy, who I met uh, out in California, she, all I'll say about her is that she's super talented and real interesting. If you discover her Instagram, mm -hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. Go look up Annie. She has a, I think she has a podcast that she does that's all about like narcissists or something. I don't know. Um, but I met Annie through a really weird happening, but we kept in touch and I just had her in mind for this one dialogue that I wanted to do. And it was everybody that I asked was so cool, like sent me stuff right back. Like she texted me this thing back and she even played. She's like, I played some keyboards under it while I was talking. I'm like, OK, that's staying in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I um, our, our friend uh, Tony Erba uh, did a thing for it. My buddy Lachlan did a thing for it. A couple other people so I won't mention everybody because I'm already going long. Um, but we got a, real, a bunch of really cool people to do it. It felt awesome, including a bunch of people on our record mm -hmm. without having to have find a, a way to have them guest on a song. You know, I didn't really want to do like the, yeah. you know, the rapper featuring the singer dynamic. I, I, <laughs> I thought it was more fun to get people involved with our record on that level where like they were my actors for the movie bits. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we put that out. We played a few shows, and then the world stopped. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As in COVID-19. Yeah, so... Um, oh, the wonderful pandemic. We didn't get to play uh, a lot after we put, the, we put that record out, December of 19. And uh, we did a release show where we played the whole record from start to finish and cued the samples. Um at that point, we started bringing more of that sort of like between song sample type stuff into the mix. 
Um, it's hard to say whether or not we'll feel the need to continue doing that the exact same way. In the earlier days, it was more of um, we had a soundtrack thing that was just random sounds that Billy would control with uh, with a foot pedal between songs. Then it kind of became samples when we wanted to do stuff from the record. And we might do it differently when we get back on stage and do it next time. It's just another one of those things that we don't feel like we have to set rules to. You know, if we if we decide to start wearing different outfits, we just will. Yeah. You know, we'll do whatever we want. But, but we have this sort of philosophy, mindset, religion... Uh, dynamic that that will be the common aesthetic that that links it all, and it really does lend itself to a very uh, engaging live performance too. I mean, I know it's you've talked about it philosophically, yeah. But, but you know, I I've brought lots of people to come see you guys, and what whatever genre of music they're into, they're just they have a great time, great time at your shows. Yeah, so I, I I I think that um, well. Steve really heads up. Our, Steve is our lighting department um, because he sets up his bass rig and then he's kind of done. And so he was just like, I'm going to set up my stuff and then I'm going to just start setting up lights. And so he just headed that up and we were like, all right, sweet. Yeah. Do more lights, you know? And then we, we bought a couple like lights that moved a little bit. And so it's, it's a very DIY sort of stage show that, I, I don't want it to not be DIY. Mm-hmm. I love the Misfits when they made their own stuff and painted their own cabinets mm-hmm. and and did that. The the reunion where they have like professionally made fifty foot pumpkins on stage and stuff is like, no, that's not what it's supposed to be. It like takes the magic away. Yeah, I like same with Kiss, you know, Kiss early on, you know, when they were making their oh, own costumes. Oh, that's the stuff you want to, those are the pictures you want to see. Like, yeah. look, like his boots coming apart. Like, yeah. how cool is that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, like that's always the best, the the, the best stuff um, is, and then it, it gets tiring doing that yourself, but and then they get successful enough to have somebody else do it, and we don't have to worry about that. Right. <laughs> right. We'll just uh, we'll stay obscure and do it ourselves, and we'll never have to ruin the magic. <laughs> Please, yes. I mean, even if you even if you get millions of dollars to go on tour, just you know, oh keep yeah, because that's <laughs> that's that's going around like right. oh, they're, they're signing bands like it's ninety two up in here. <laughs> well, here's what I think. This is what I would suggest if you're up op- if you're open to it. Um, because I don't want to, we, we did go a little bit long for the podcast. I don't want to just brush over the stuff that you've been doing as of late. Mm-hmm. So if it's cool with you, why don't we just set up something where you can come back Yeah, sure. and we can really dive into what you guys have been recording and go into those songs and things. I'd be happy to. Oh, fantastic. Well, Brandon, like, thank you so much for coming down. Oh, my pleasure. I'm and talking I, like it, it, it's a fantastic story. I'm glad that you're happy. I talked a lot because normally I feel like bad about it after I have, I have weird like talkers guilt sometimes. Don't, so. don't please <laughs> talkers guilt. No, I, I think it, I, I was, it was a fascinating conversation and I'm, I'm okay. so glad that I got to hear those stories. And, and I know like, you know, if there's fans of public squares listening, they want to hear those stories too. And if it's somebody who's just finding out about you for the first time, it's a great story. Okay. Um, 
but I don't want to rush the rest it's of it. Weird when it's you, you know what I mean? Like, does anybody care about me? No, I think it's <laughs> I think it's I think it's fucking great. But yeah, I don't want to rush the rest of it because you guys have been putting out such good material, and I know that you're writing something you're currently writing or or you're recording. Yeah, I guess all I'll say about that without without you know beginning part two already is that um, to follow the progression of like coming out with your first record that is like sort of scrappy and. And and you know, uh, introducing yourself to the world, and then following with a concept record. This one, I my goal is for it to be the record that defines us. It doesn't have to be the best one because that's subjective. Mm-hmm. But I want this like like I'm a Queen fan, and this is going to be our night at the opera. How exciting is that? You I'm get, excited about it. You got it. me on that cliffhanger. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I have more questions that I wanted I want to ask you, and I just think, yeah, I think well, let's do part two. Okay. Awesome. I, I'm thrilled I have another, I'll have a second reason to leave the house. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, and, uh, and we'll see you next time. And All right. <laughs>